0: Hey, <laughs> hey! We're gonna do something a little different today. I'm gonna—I've got some some uh, slides I want to show you from the trip, and I want to talk to you about things I learned on this trip. We're still in this mode, right? We're gonna go into Hebrews next week. It'll be an intro to Hebrews, but today we're we're still talking. You know, we we covered core values of community, uh, Bible, prayer, and. Um, and uh, discipleship. We're going to talk about uh, evangelism, but it's in a way that maybe you haven't thought about. Um, I hope to, to help you think through some of the things that God kind of, oh, on this trip, really impressed upon my heart. As I was in His Word, I was in His land, where He uh, chose a people to put them in a very specific place. You know, he could have chose any place throughout history, any land throughout history, to put his people where his son would come, the Messiah would come, and his people would come. And he chose that land, that way, the way those people operated, and it was fascinating to go back and and really learn from a Hebrew perspective some things that I'd never really thought about. And so I hope to share some of those with you today, because the Bible's full of metaphors. And God's people understood that. In fact, the number one metaphor for the Jewish person was desert. It was desert. And and Abraham was from the desert. Moses went out into the desert. Jesus went out into the desert. Paul went out into the desert because the desert was God's training ground for His people. It always was. And for us, the desert may not be 110 degrees and nothing but sand and heat and, and, and rocks, but the desert for us may be cancer. Or a broken relationship. Or a situation that we can't fix. But it is God's training ground. And as I walked through this with my wife, who's in the middle of some deserts of her own, with her health and with uh, dealing with some of our children with some things, it, it was really impactful for us to kind of walk through this and see other metaphors that I never really picked up on that God wants us to understand, I believe. So so one of the things we're going to do we've been saying we usually say the prayer and then at the end we repeat the shema but today i'm going to have you say the shema with me you're going to repeat it after me if you want to in english i mean i'm sorry in hebrew at first and then we're going to do it in english and if you don't want to say it that's fine The people who want to say it, we're saying this not, it's not a magic formula, it's just affirming to God our love for Him and our desire to be a people who want to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors ourselves. So I will try to say the Hebrew slow so you can follow and God gets your heart so just uh, follow along with me. Shema Israel. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Adonai. Via Et Edonai, Eloheha, Vihole, Lavavka, Uvahole, Uvahole, Nafshika, meodeka. Uvahole, lariaka Mayodeka, Kamoka, Amen. Hero Israel. Hear, o Israel. The Lord our God. The Lord, our God. The, Lord is one. the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God. And you shall love the Lord your God. With all your, heart With all your heart and all your soul. And all your soul and all your strength. And all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor, and you shall love your neighbor as, yourself. as yourself. Lord, take the next few minutes that we're here, and I pray that you would, Lord, take what you did in my heart while we were over there. And I pray, Lord, that each man in here would get a vision for how You have called us to be Your people on display to the world around us, Lord. That we would display Your power, Your grace, Your love, Your mercy. So take this time, the passages we look at, and also take, Lord, just the way You worked in my heart over there as I share the story of that. And I, I, I just share, Lord, the vision that You put into me. To, to help men be who you've called us to be. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Say these words after me. You are like living stones. You are like living stones. Being built into a spiritual house. Being built into house. To be a royal priesthood. To be a royal priesthood. These are the very words of God. These are the very words of God. When we were over there, guys. I had no idea what I was going to experience. I mean, I knew that we were going to have to do hiking, but it was I, the only thing I know to compare it to prior to uh, is when I went through Marine Corps boot camp training. I had no idea the physical aspects of what it would be over there. Maybe it's because of my age, maybe it's because I wasn't in good a shape as I thought I was, but it was unbelievable. We spent six days in the desert. The temperatures got up to 108 degrees in the daytime, all right, But they would go down to 50 degrees at night. So you had a 50 to 60 degree split sometimes in the temperature range. So it would be very, very cold. So when you read in the Proverbs, or the Psalms I mean, about He's a shade in the day and a comfort at night, that means you get a better picture when you actually experience it. And you know, one of the things I never thought about is when He led the children of Israel into the desert for 40 days, how did He lead them in the day? He was a what? In the day. He was a cloud which provided shade. We get this idea of a little bitty cloud leading them, but He was shade for His people in the desert. And at night, He was a fire which was warmth. He took care of His people. He is a God who cares for His people, and He wants His people to care for other people. And I just want to show you a few things as we go through this. By the way, I've got four slots left for the trip to Israel in January. If you want to go, this is Masada. This is one of the places we went to. Who built this for you guys who remember? Herod. Herod. He built it. And you know, his goal was to basically bring shalom or peace to Himself at the expense of other people. Where Jesus came to bring peace to others at the expense of Himself. Two very big contrasts. And I really believe that's why God came through Jesus at that time. Jesus came into Herod's world to contrast somebody who would use people for His own benefit against somebody who would not... I mean, this was amazing. This. They had stores up at the top of Masada, food and water. They found food containers there, 2,000 years old, that you could still eat the food out of. Wow. Now think about that. Herod was a genius. He was an unbelievable genius. But that's Masada. So uh, he also be- built Caesarea Maritime, and he built that to Caesar. He built a lot of things. He built Herodium. He had all these great places and. Um, he did it because he wanted to make his name great. Now what's our our responsibility? Our responsibility is to make God's name great. Amen. But Herod lived to make his own self great. Jesus lived to make the name of his father great and he tried to pass that on to the disciples. Now, I don't know if this that's pretty. I don't know if you can read that. This is a definition of discipleship that uh, that basically God has been brewing in my heart over the last really few years. And I want to read it, and it's pretty intensive. And I'm going to send it out via email next week. But it's an intentional mentoring shepherding relationship that fosters spiritual growth through biblical instruction, which I think our culture is pretty good at encouragement, which I think we're pretty good at, modeling, which we're not very good at, and accountability, which we're not very good at. So we miss these two elements a lot of times. But if you pull those two elements out, you really are missing discipleship the way the Bible defines it. And he says, in community, this is another aspect, you cannot grow apart from community. It's impossible the way God intended it. He started with his people. They were always referred to in the plural. They were always referred to be in the training mode with people together. The the base unit was called the Beitav, which is the house of the father. There was a patriarch who oversaw not only his immediate family, but the extended family. It would be 30 to 60 people. And it was his responsibility to have all the funds brought to him so that he oversaw how everybody was cared for. And usually, if there was an orphan or a widow that was brought, they tried to bring them in to care for them. And and there's countless stories in the Old Testament where you see that model where God's people didn't always do what they were supposed to do. But that community was really important with the goal of reproducing future mentor shepherds that have a passion to know God and His Word and to train others to put His presence on display to a hurting world. Now... For a lot of us in the West, we think, even if we get the modeling and accountability, we want to have a passion to know His word and to train others, but it's the putting His presence on display to a hurting world that we miss out a lot of times on. I think I got that picture. Well, no, that's Ray, that's Ray and Lori and I. This is at En Gedi. This is up at a spring in En Gedi. And trust me, after you've been hiking for about eight miles and 108 degrees, you jump in the water when you get there. There was no, I mean, we didn't care. You just jumped in with everything because it felt so good to to get wet. But this was the kind of terrain that we were hiking in. I want you to notice, if you look at the bottom of the screen, what do you see at the bottom? Big rocks, right? We walked over those rocks. It wasn't like walking on concrete. It wasn't like walking on a yard somewhere. It was painful walking. And we had, most people there had $80 to $90, $100 Merrill Moabs, or they had, you know, really nice hiking shoes. I was thinking about the disciples and, and the people of Israel when they walked over that. And you know what God said? Your sandals never wore out. 40 years in the wilderness because He took care of them. But look at that. We walked there to learn this lesson of desert. Now, if you look there, it looks like there's all camels, what you'll see is up here, there's some uh, sheep and shepherds. Most of the shepherds we saw were between 12 and 16 years old. Now when you think about shepherds in your Christmas pictures, you picture guys with gray flowing beards that are probably as old as Jim over here, James over here, right?,, <laughs> six, six, yeah, right? I mean, we picture these people with flowing beards, but most of them were young. They were young men or even females. That's who were the shepherds. And they guided the sheep not by uh, driving them, but by gently move, maneuvering them by throwing rocks next to them. They never threw rocks at the sheep if they were good shepherds. And they led them by their voice. And, were, and the, you know how the sheep knew... Where to follow? Because the shepherds were trained to take sheep to a grassy part and they would associate that grassy part with their voice. And so wherever the sheep heard that voice, they would assume there was going to be grass there. And so that's why that, that, um, that particular metaphor is throughout Scripture. And you got people today that say, well, you know, it really doesn't apply in our culture anymore. God used this shepherd metaphor for a reason. He used shepherds for a reason. Because shepherds were nurturing and caring for their sheep. And and that's the way they led. And they led by their voice. Now this is a city gate. Now I want you to notice something. Here's where the gate is right here. And you've got compartments here. Little rooms. And the reason they know that this was Solomon's time period is by the time Solomon was there, they were building six of these compartments right there that were built into the wall itself. And the other thing that they did is they had little rooms all around the wall for who? Poor people. Part of the function of a city gate, it actually had five functions. One was the court. They held court there. If you had a crime committed against you, you'd bring witnesses there and you'd go to the city gate. Uh, It was a marketplace. Right inside the city gate, they would have vendors set up. Uh, There was a temple and the high places were there where they would do worship right there. It was also where the king held his audience. I don't know if you remember King David or Absalom or sometimes Absalom went instead of David down there to try to subvert David's authority. But the king would go there to hold business. And then the last thing about a city gate was the poor people would come to the city gate to seek shelter from poverty and the outside world. And so God wanted His people to put Him on display by welcoming people to the gate. Not turning them away. And every time they didn't do that in the Old Testament, they were rebuked for it. And so, he calls uh, the, the, these gates and cities where this Tel Gezer was built up high on a hill because it was defensive there. And the rationale was the reason poor people would come because they would figure if a king could defend himself, he could provide food and water for them. And so, hence the term city on a hill. You remember that from the New Testament? Matthew 5.14 What does it say? You are the light of the world. You are a city up on a hill. And that's what he's talking about there. That when people see you, they're drawn to you because poverty is the, one, is the number one indicator of chaos in that time period. What chaos means without form and void. It's the same word in Genesis 1-2. It's tovu vohu. And it means without order. And God's people were called to bring shalom to that. Shalom to chaos. Because what happens is when you start living outside of God's order, you go into chaos. And people want to know why why is their lives so much in chaos? For us, we refer to it a lot of times as sin. But really, it's disorder. It's not the way God intended. He intended our lives to follow His pattern, whether it's in marriage, or whether it's in the way we... uh, parent our kids and so when we don't go according to the way God wants our lives end up in chaos and sometimes they end up in chaos even if we are following his pattern why because other people in our world and in our sphere of influence they aren't and so like a big snowball that started back in Genesis this chaos has wrecked our world but God has put his people at a very strategic place now I don't have a map of this but Gezer was located at a very strategic point in that world. I want you to picture for a second. Here's Egypt down here, right? Mm -hmm. Up here is Mesopotamia. This is the the, the Asian cultures. Babylon, uh, Persia, and all these. To get from here to here, they had to go through the Jericho Road and then down to this thing called the Via Maris, which was the road that ran along the sea. You couldn't get the things from Egypt to there without going along that. So Gezer was at a place that was very defensively strategic. You could control the whole world. And isn't it interesting that that's where God put His people on the crossroads of the world? And I was listening to Ray teach about that and I was thinking about us here in America. Think about where we live. Think about the influence of our country in the big scheme of the world. And how God has placed us here with all these resources And we're so caught up in politics a lot of times now in this present day and age that we will allow politics to overshadow God's call for us to be city gates and a city on a hill to the alien, to the sojourner, to the person who is hurting out there. And it's not their fault that people are using them. And this isn't political. I'm really not trying to be political at all. But I even get caught up in it. I don't know if you struggle with it or not. But, but i would lost sight of the fact that He's called us to love these people, to be His ambassadors that take His light out to them. And so this was a very, very instructive day for me to just look inward and say, am I being a city gate? Am I being a city on the hill for people that are hurting? Because the poor would come up there looking for refuge. And what are we doing? Are we turning them away? Or are we saying, no, we'll, we'll help you. Because all the way back in Leviticus chapter 19, God commanded His people, when you take care of your field, you leave the four corners of your field uncut so that the sojourner, the alien, the widow... The orphan, the poor person, they can come through and they can have some of that. And I thought about my own life, how much I spend on myself of what God brings into me. How much I think about, do I really leave my four corners for the alien? Do I think about that? It was really, really an instructive day uh, there for me. Now, these are standing stones. This was also at Tel Gezer. And there were 12 stones set up. Now if you know in Scripture a lot of times, God commanded to leave stones there. And these standing stones, when you saw one of these, you knew that somebody worshiped something there. And the lesson that He really taught us up there that I thought was very helpful is, remember what I had you quote at the beginning? You are a living stone? Are you a stone for Him out in the world in which you live? (coughs) When people see you, do they go, wow, I wonder what happened here? Because when you go by and you see these big 12 stones there, you go, what's that about? That's one of the reasons that we're supposed to care for the poor and to care for people, is that the world goes, why are they doing that? Because that's not what our world does. They typically don't do that. They're so consumed with their own stuff that they don't think about interjecting grace or shalom or peace into the other people's world so that was also an instructive time and I wonder if maybe there was somebody in your life who's been a standing stone that it might be good for you in the next week or two to maybe jot them a note and say thank you for being a standing stone in my life that really drew me to God are you a standing stone in anybody's life You know, that's the thing is I I really thought about that. That's what I want to be. I want to be a stone that when people see me, that they go, wow, why is He different? Why is He living differently than the rest of the world around Him? That's why we obey God. We obey God so that when people see us, they go, they're different. That's why He gave all these laws, all these different commands in the Old Testament. and so. This was an interesting uh, this was when we were out there looking at the uh, shepherds. You see that right there? Take a look at those little tufts of brown grass. I'm going to show you one more picture of a bigger field. You see it there? Can you see it in the right there at the base? There's some right there. You see those little tufts? You know what that is? In Psalm 23, God says, "The Lord's my shepherd." I shall not want. He makes me lie down in what? Green pastures. That's green pastures for a shepherd. <laughs> That's green pastures. And you know, when, when he shared that, I was like, really? But I want you to look at all these little tufts all over. Sheep will eat this. And the, the lesson there was we think of these luscious Rolling green meadows. And he says, I'm going to give you enough for today." Matthew 6. Matthew 6. Don't worry about what tomorrow brings. Don't worry about that. You just seek me first and I'll take care of you. And those sheep would eat and that shepherd would lead them here. They would eat and then he'd take them somewhere else. That was really impactful to me too. To think about that, because when you look at that, you go, see, our minds are so geared toward a Western lens in the way we look at Scripture. When we read about green pastures, we think in terms of an American green pasture, not in what a shepherd would have saw. But the people, when they read that passage, they would have thought about this. Because those little tufts of grass keep those sheep alive and they eat a lot of them. And the shepherd takes them, but it's enough for the day. And so that also was a very, very impactful thing for me to learn. You see just some of the, the hiking in the desert there, um, going up to, I mean, we, we, we did a lot of that, and it was hot. I told you it was 108 degrees. One day, I think I went through four two-liter bottles, and I don't think I urinated once. That's a lot of water, guys. I'm just telling you, I've never drank that much in my life. It was, it was hot. There's Lori. Thank you guys for praying, by the way. You know what that is? That's a broom tree. You ever heard of a broom tree? Read about a broom tree in Scripture? Now you look at that, and you go, man, that ain't very much of a tree. It's more like a bush. That's what Elijah was under when he was getting shade in the desert. Remember when he was running from Jezebel? It was a broom tree. Hagar, when she left and took her baby, Ishmael, She put him under a broom tree, and then she went and got under a broom tree. The temperature, believe it or not, in this little shade is about 20 to 25 degrees cooler than it is outside. But again, in our Western mind, when we read about that and we think about it, we think about a 50-foot canopied oak tree. And God says, I'm going to give you just enough shade to have a little break, so then you can put press on down the desert road. And that was the lesson of that for, for us that day. We'll never forget that. And he, he allows his people to be trained in the desert and have those broom tree moments so then they can be broom trees to other people. And as I was going through this and, and you know at the end of the day, I'm just processing all this stuff in my head and I'm thinking about all the people, that have been broom trees in my life at different times. Bud, you're one of them. Tom, you're one of them. Dave Wilbert, you're one of them. Brad, you're one of them. A lot of you guys. Greg, you're one of them. Heck, half you guys in here have been broom trees to me at different times. Two weeks before I left for this trip, I had to take Rachel up to a home up in North Carolina. Rachel struggles with with, uh, reactive attachment disorder, which happens a lot with orphans who have been traumatized. And it was one of the hardest things I ever had to do was to take her up to this place that she's going to be at for the next year to year and a half. We've talked to her twice since she's been up there. We won't be able to visit her probably till November. And it's hard. But you know what? People have been broom trees to us. Lori struggled with it. And I I was able to be a broom tree for her. And one of the things I learned on this trip... There were times that it would be so hot and there were no broom trees, so Lori would sit down and I would just go and I would stand and let my shadow be on her to give her cool. And she noticed that. She noticed that after this. She probably wouldn't have noticed it before the lesson and really understanding it, but she noticed it, how cooler it was, and she'd look up. And it was reminding to me that in life, as my wife goes through deserts, I've, I've got a responsibility to be a broom tree to her at different times to be a broom tree. And sometimes it may mean standing in the heat. And, and I'm not getting the relief, but I'm being a broom tree for her. And that was something that he taught me that was really impactful. Taking her pack when I'm, I'm dying getting up the hill, but I know that she doesn't have it to go up it. There were many, many tearful days for her because it was hard. But I don't think she could have made it. I think she would have heat stroked if she had, had to hump her pack up there. Mm-hmm. But that's what God showed me through that. It was very, very powerful broom tree lesson. And so, while we were there, Ray taught us up. He showed, shared a story about a rabbi. This rabbi's coming in one night. And uh, it's, it's late at night. The Roman guard's on the gate. This is right before the time of Christ. And this Roman guard goes, Hey! Stop! Who are you? And what are you doing here? The rabbi was startled because he couldn't see the guy up on the wall. And he goes, Who are you? And what are you doing here? The rabbi thought for a second. He said, I have a question for you. Roman, how much do you get paid to ask me these questions? The Roman thought, "Why, Why am I answering this Jew? But he said, three denarii a day. And the rabbi said, I'll give you double that if you will come to my house every morning and ask me those two questions every day for the rest of my life. Who are you and what are you doing here? you think about that? you think about who, who am I and what am I doing here? Am I defined by the world in which I live The world around me, the the Hellenistic world that lives for pleasure, that lives for leisure, is that what defines me? Or am I defined by the fact that God created me to be a city gate, a standing stone, a broom tree? He created me to be a, a refuge and a light to display His presence to the world around us. Who am I? And what am I doing here? Well, how am I spending my time? I was so convicted, guys, when I was over there. And I have I, read through the Bible so many times. And I was so convicted about these questions. Who am I? And what am I doing on a daily basis? What am I doing every day? That, that question that, that he asked that rabbi and that story penetrated me. What if I ask myself that every morning about my schedule, about my day? What am I doing? It doesn't mean you, don't, you have to be a monk and go just like Mother Teresa, go to Calcutta. It might mean that. But what it means is every day you consider what you're doing in light of these questions from God's perspective. That He's created you and called you to be Himself. You know how many times I hear people say, well, I just don't have time to be part of a group i don't have time And listen i know we have responsibilities i'm not saying that you don't meet your responsibilities what i'm saying is when you go through your day how much leisure time do you have built in there how much other time do you have built in there that is not kingdom related stuff it's really penetrating to really work through those things and we have this concept in the west that i think has been here for at least couple of hundred years, where we think that our purpose is to go tell people about Jesus. We think the mission changed from Moses on Mount Sinai to today just going to tell people a verbal message that Jesus is the Messiah. But that's not it at all. That's a part of it. But the message that Moses got back out on Mount Sinai was to go represent me to the world. And I want you to see that. I want to take you to a verse. In Exodus, first of all, Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7 says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery. That was their chaos to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be My people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Amen. He calls us to Himself, first of all, for relationship. That's the first thing. God created us for a, a relationship with Him where we're dependent upon Him. Not where we do life independent. But Notice, this is Exodus 19. This is right before He lays out the Ten Commandments. This is where they're outside of Egypt now. They have left Egypt, and He's reminding them of what He's done and what He wants them to do. Exodus 19, verses 4-6, through He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles. By the way, I want to correct that, you guys. This was a translation of eagles made by English people in, in both in, in Britain and here because the actual word there is vulture. It's a vulture. It's this big, massive vulture over in, in Israel. But when the translators translated it, for a Hebrew to think about a big vulture, they don't think of it the same way you and I do. When we think about a vulture, we think about a, a, somebody that eats road, road meat, right? You don't think of this big majestic bird. And so they thought it would better convey to us to put eagles there, but it's a vulture. Now every time you see that, you're going to think of vulture instead of eagle. Isaiah 41 is the same thing. All right? On vulture's wings and brought you to Myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice. If you what? If you obey His voice and keep My covenant... You will be my treasure. My treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a what? Say it again. King. A, kingdom a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You know who spoke that to us? Where else do you see that? First Peter. First Peter, First Peter 2 you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So here's the picture. Let me give you this, this kind of little like progression. God created us for a relationship and a partnership with Him. He redeemed us out of chaos or sin. He then spoke to us On Sinai, He spoke via the Ten Commandments. His tablets. Here, today, He speaks to us through His Word. He calls us to hear. That word here is Shema. And remember, Shema means a hearing that obeys. He says obey. Don't just hear. And remember, (laughs) I wish I could show you a picture of a wadi. A wadi is actually a little valley in between mountains. And what happens when it rains, it can rain 30 miles up from where that is, and that water will come roaring down that wadi, and it it can get as high as 14 to 18 feet in the wadi in a period of 10 seconds. And you'll never see it. You don't see rain. All you see is a little trickle of water. Ten seconds later, it's up to 14 to 18 feet high. If you go on YouTube and you put wadi flood, you'll see what I'm talking about. How do you spell wadi? W-A-D-I. And so, when Jesus in Matthew 7 says, the man who builds his house on the rock is the one who hears the Word and does it. But the one who builds his house on the sand, that word can mean two types of sand. And the sand that it's talking about there is wadi sand. When you build your house down there, you're like a guy who hears the Word, but you don't do it. And so He he speaks to us And then he gives us a mission to go put him on display to the world around us, to the hurting. That's what he's called us to do. And so he says, once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Who's he talking to here? Who's a sojourner and an exile? We are. We are. So, so what should I, our attitude be to sojourners and exiles? Accepting. Mm-hmm. Say again? Accepting. Yeah. We, we should be loving toward them because we were them. We are them. To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our soul. We're in a battle every day. Every day. And here's the, here's the picture. The back of this shirt says what? Fight the faith. Fight for the faith. You're in a war, we are. and every day, guys, that we don't obey, we give a little inch of the kingdom to Satan when we do that. Because the word "obey" what it what it conveys when it says in the Lord's prayer, when He taught him how to pray, He said, "Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be the, Your name." Hallowing His name means to represent His name well. Thy kingdom come, his kingdom coming means you're obeying. Because the kingdom was not geographic, the kingdom was wherever his will was being obeyed. So when you don't obey his will, you are letting Satan take that ground for him. Because he's the prince of the world. And we're in a battle every day. And that's what he's talking about. So he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the pagans, honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Our our mission, guys, is to put God on display in the world in which we live. That's our mission. In community to do that. And I'm going to tell you, I was just in Louisiana. I flew in there yesterday. I spoke last night to a guy that I've been mentoring for the last 10 years. He was on staff at a church he got caught up in a political struggle. He didn't do anything wrong. He just came down on the wrong side of where some of the leaders in that church wanted him to be. So they said, you're no longer welcome here on staff. He'd been there. He was saved in that church. His mother was a single mom. He got saved. He grew up to be on staff at that church leading the men. Was doing a great job. But because he didn't buy into the political alliances that the pastor wanted, he let him go. He was told, you can't associate with that brother. Even though the brother wasn't living in sin, just a different political persuasion. Period. And he canned him. And he was crushed. And, and I saw him and I, said, I talked to him and I said, you know what? You just keep doing what you're doing. And so nine years ago, or I'm sorry, two years ago, two and a half years ago, he started this thing called Men of Courage they have between four and six hundred men every month gather every month for a a monthly meeting and then every week he leads a bible study and and now he's he's going to be on the radio thursday i'm going to interview him thursday but i i've watched him do what this says he cares for people they've adopted this street down there called k street it's where all the gangs operate And it would be like our north side in some parts of our north side. And he has just taken these men and he says, we're going to go down there. We're going to reclaim this back for God. And so they go down there and they go into these homes and they ask them, they just knock on the door. Hey, we're just here. We represent God. We want to know, do you have any needs that we can help you with? And they give them food. They build them. uh, They repair their doors. Whatever they need to do. And word has spread. Now, one of the pastors at the church down there came to him and said, can we partner with you? And this is is an African-American church down there where the pastor just said, man, we want to be a part of this too. We want to join with you. And now they're taking this part of the city back for God. And that's what he's talking about. Kingdom of priests. And guys, there's so many opportunities, but they're doing it as a community. They're doing it together. So, we are living stones. And we're being built into a spiritual house. We're all in this together. And so, when we have a need, we should be able to call and say, hey, you know what, Greg? Man, I don't know what to do. Can you help me here? Or do you know anybody can help me? And he should say yes. Why? Because we're in community together. And we're committed to the same mission. Does that make sense? Let me, let me go to this first because I thought this was very instructive too. This was my memory verse. We each had memory verses over there. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us as, in triumphal processions and through us He spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. This is key. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and who? Among those who are perishing. It's not just to the people that respond. It's to everyone. That's what made Jesus so radically different. He came came into a time where the Jewish people to assert God's rights over the land were taking violent measures into their hands. The only people they wanted to redeem were the Jews. That's why they killed Stephen. Because he's talking about Gentiles. That's why they wanted to kill Paul. Because he's saying, no, it's not just for us. So we really have three things we can do with our culture around us. We can isolate, which we do a lot. We just pull off to ourselves. We can assimilate where we basically compromise. We go and we're so much like them that nobody sees a difference. Or we can engage i want swat to engage that's what i feel like god's called us to to engage our culture as kingdom of priests together as a group of men and to go out there's all kinds of needs we just need to have the the mindset that you know what we want to be about kingdom work being a kingdom of priests spreading his work And how do you choose which one to do and which not? Well, you get the opportunities and you say, Lord, direct us. How do you want us to go here? So how do you execute it then? With that in mind, here's how you execute it. First of all, you have to learn the text. Guys, listen, I'm going to tell you right now, except for Brad, because I told Brad, there's an Old Testament passage related to Luke chapter 10 where Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you did not hear about it on SWAT radio, I'll give you 50 bucks if you can tell me the Old Testament passage that's associated with what Jesus was talking about when He gave the parable of the Good Samaritan. Does anybody know? You know why we don't know? Because we're not students of the text. The people, when Jesus told that story, every Jew would have known immediately what passage He was referencing in the Old Testament. Because if you go there, I'm going to tell you what it is and you can go back and study it. It's 2 Chronicles 28. Because in 2 Chronicles 28, He mentions Samaritans and He mentions Jericho. And that's Jericho. That's one of the only times in the New Testament when Jesus telling a parable that He mentions a city. If you see a city, if you see a a, a specific number, or if you see a name, or if you see something that says like, you can almost rest assured it's going back to an Old Testament passage. And those people would have gone back to that text to understand what God was really saying. It's not that you don't understand the general concept, but it gives you much more of a fuller understanding of what He was trying to communicate. We have to study the text, learn the text, apply the text in our life, and then live out the text as a kingdom of priests so that we put Him on display to the marginalized. That's how we do it. I want you to think for a second about David. 1 Samuel 17. David and Goliath. David's about 12 years old maybe. 11 or 12. I want you to think about an 11 or 12 year old kid today. Standing up, in front of the head of Al-Qaeda over in the middle of Afghanistan right now. I want you to get that picture. And this is what he says. This day the Lord will deliver you into My hand. And I will strike you down. And I will cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines, he says here, this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Amen. I want you to think about that for a second. David was putting God on display. Why? Because Saul, here's this great contrast. Saul was, you know what it says about tall? Saul, he was taller than anybody in the land by a foot almost. David was the youngest of his family. So you have these contrasts. It's not about what we have, it's who we look to. And that's what David was trying to get across. I'm not doing this for my glory. I'm doing this for God. Saul was quaking in his boots. Eliab, the oldest of David's brothers, quaking in his boots. They should have been the ones who represented God, but no, they were too afraid. But David goes down there, and you know what he gets? He picks up five smooth stones because that's what David knew. And I guarantee you, everybody in this room has their own smooth stone. You have what you're used to working with. You just use it to make him known. That's what he's talking about. What about Elijah over in, uh, Elijah's over in uh, 1 Kings. Over in 1 Kings, I think it's chapter 18. He's talking to God in front of all these people, and he says, Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that these people may know that you, O Lord, are God. That's what we live for so that when people see our lives, they know that there is a real living God and that their life can have peace. Shalom. Their life can. I mean, just in the last two weeks, I've had two or three phone calls with different people who have made their life chaos by bad choices. They need peace. And I can't fix their circumstances, but what I can help them is I can pray with them and I can tell them you're not alone and there's a God who can get you through this. And that's all we can give people. That's all we can give. You don't have to feel like you have to fix the circumstance. If God wants to change it, He can. But if He doesn't, He still wants you to love the person and care for them, to be compassionate. And that's what He's called us to. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. My prayer is that, Lord, we would be a kingdom of priests for you. I know this is convicting. It's convicting for me. And I just ask you, Lord, to give us strength and grace as to, to go into your word, to learn your word, to apply your word in our lives, and to show you to the world around us by the way we live and care for those that you bring into our lives. We love you. And we offer you all praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.